0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Corey Berg, instructor in nursing for the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to talk about the importance of patient education. So thanks for joining us today, Corey.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me, Dr. Kreuter. It's a- privilege to be here.
0: This is wonderful. I love kind of getting different perspectives on this podcast. And I think for many of us as pathologists, sometimes we like to call ourselves the doctor's doctor, certainly that extends out for allied health medicine and, and lab medicine as well. We're really educating a lot of the people that we work with, including sometimes patients. And so I'm kind of really excited to explore this with you but maybe to start off what's your origin story how did you come to kind of work in this unique health setting of educating patients
1: sure as a young girl my mom's only sister was diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age she was in her early 30s and so I remember treatment would often leave her lethargic and nauseated. And after a brief stint of being cancer-free, she ended up having a recurrence and she ended up dying in her early forties. So in March of 2010, a few years after her death, I was 25 years old, newly married, and I had picked up a magazine article in a small clinic And I read about a young female who got tested for a genetic mutation that increased her risk of breast cancer. And she had a prophylactic mastectomy and she also had Jewish ancestry. And so I immediately called my mom and I said, is this something that aunt Rosalie could have had? We were unsure, but I said, if this is something that I could have, I'd want to do the same thing and reduce my risk because I was severely impacted by it. So I immediately called my physician and scheduled an appointment. And at the appointment, I was not a nurse yet. And I didn't have any information about genetics or any risks associated with getting tested or anything like that. And the doctor was supportive of my decision. Honestly, he said, okay, I'll, get the genetic test ordered. And if you're positive, you snip snip, like holding scissors right in front of his chest. Although I was familiar with a doctor looking back, I just don't think that that was the most professional or informative way of conducting an appointment. I was a young female and I was still very emotional from the death of my aunt and I would have benefited from statistics or risks, any genetics information or even information on Gina, which was enacted in 2008. And this was 2010. And then I went straight to the lab without talking to my husband or my mom. And I knew the lab tech as well. And she looked at me and she said, honey do you know what you're doing? And I told her, yep, this is what I plan to do. And she goes, well, those are a part of your womanhood. And I just collected all of my winter gear and I went home and I called Mayo Clinic Rochester and I scheduled an appointment with the breast clinic, met with them and they scheduled an appointment with the genetic counselor. And the genetic counselor was able to create my family pedigree and it showed my Jewish ancestry on both sides. And the GC said, Corey, we see that you have cancer in your family, but not enough. So I just don't think you're going to have BRCA because that's all that they were aware of at the time that increased your risk of breast cancer. I said, that's fine. I want to get tested. I don't care if I have to pay for it out of pocket. I just want to know and just call me with the results because I live two hours away. So the genetic counselor called me. I remember she was crying And she said that I was indeed BRCA2 positive and my surgery was a month later.
0: It's a really powerful origin story of of getting into patient education. And as you were telling it, I was reflecting on all the times where I have failed the way that I talk with patients. In my case, I see a lot of that coming out because of how I'm maybe more often talking with different groups of people and sort of get used to talking about things in in certain ways Mm -hmm. and not making that reset and that connection. And so I I think sometimes that's where my failures come. And and hopefully when I catch them, I try to see if I can, I try to say, I apologize. I think I'm saying this wrong and try to catch that. I'm kind of curious now being a nurse uh, for several years and really taking a front line and educating patients. What are some of the common ways that you see healthcare really fail to successfully educate patients?
1: Yeah, that really inspired me to go into nursing. So after my surgery, I moved back to Rochester for various reasons. I was born and raised in Rochester and I worked at Mayo Clinic while I was going back to school for nursing and I didn't stop until I got my master's. And eventually I did get a job at the Center for Individualized Medicine where now I can teach patients, but obviously besides my own mishaps with my experiences, I know that primary care providers have very little time to stay up to date with everything, especially Mm -hmm. genetics or genomics and the latest in genetics and their associated risks. In 2010, we were really only privileged to know about BRCA, BRCA1 and BRCA2, and it was patented at the time. So Myriad did have that advantage. Now we're so much more aware of other genes that increase our risk, but not only for breast cancer, but for other cancers as well. And there's a major overlap. And then some of those genes, we are aware that they maybe indicate that we should be getting preventative surgeries, correct? And then other ones, maybe it's just surveillance. So when we're going to a primary care provider, maybe they don't have the latest information because it's not because they're not proficient. It's just that they don't have the time. So I do think that it would be great if they could have a genetic specialist if they're a smaller area in their department or in their hospital. But if not, refer to a genetic counselor. That is what I would say. At Mayo Clinic, our genetic counseling teams across the enterprise are growing and they can help patients assess for risk, understand their risk, the implications, the testing process, results, treatment options, address emotional concerns, not only for the patient, but for their family members. They're used to advocacy and they can refer patients to support groups. So I obviously, as an advocate for utilizing genetic counselors at Mayo Clinic, privileged to have the Center for Individualized Medicine, where I work, it's built clinics to allow opportunities for patients to be seen sometimes the same day instead of waiting months to be seen for a genetic counselor because this enables patients to be seen faster. And we both know that genes can determine the type of chemotherapy or treatment that patients need to be seen. So precision medicine or individualized medicine, as many people call it, and the regimens that we follow. But I've said this before and I will say it again, that I think healthcare providers can get desensitized. And, you know, as a nurse, I see it quite a bit. We continue to see the same indication over and over. We may think it's the same patient over and over. I think of each patient as someone I love very, very much. And I think of all of my education as my grandma. So would this benefit her? How does she deserve to be treated? So put a person behind every indication, put your special person behind that indication. In lab medicine, this would be similar to a specimen, you know, keep that in mind behind every specimen that's special individual to you. So you're spending that time on that special individual to you. It's not just blood, saliva, whatever it may be. And in that case, every indication is a patient.
0: You know, a theme I, I hear in your answer there uh, when you're talking about time and, you know, that's not to say people aren't aren't competent in their work, but just there are challenges that we're trying to navigate uh, time, the complexity, the rapid pace of innovation. And I think your wisdom there of making sure we connect with people who may know the latest and greatest and just verifying, you know, is this information correct? Is there something more to offer? I think always that reaching out for help, that's something certainly uh, we should probably do more of in our practices mm-hmm. as a cautionary thing given your work in the Center for Individualized Medicine and talking about educating patients, I imagine two things I'm kind of curious about, how do you navigate the complexity of stuff that you're talking about? I mean, and you're individualizing it. So it's it's really talking to that specific person as you're putting it, that special person. And also these things might change over time. And so Mm -hmm. like, You know, maybe somebody should revisit this at some point in time. Uh, I'm kind of curious how you navigate those.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is complex. So things do change quite often, especially, you know, with technology, things change as well. So (laughs) that happens a lot. So we have to revisit things. Education materials need to change. We find that we're going more and more away from print materials. That means that they want to do more PowerPoints, but that gets away also from face-to-face. So that can take away from that hands-on communication with the patient as well. That can become a challenge because you don't know if they're absorbing the information also that you're teaching Mm -hmm. them. That is difficult, but making sure that you're hopefully answering any questions that you have, and that's when you want to make sure that you're delivering different models of education. For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit maocliniclabs.com forward slash education.
0: I hear what you're saying. I I think that by innovating and like, instead of having printed materials, you're then able to really update stuff. I imagine Mm -hmm. that the PowerPoints that you're doing are a lot more up to date than like Mm -hmm. something that was on a print run. And it's like, well, that was the previous edition. We haven't run out of those yet. Yeah. But but then at the same time, you're bringing up the point that, you know, with this innovation, which has some good side to it, there's new challenges that get Mm -hmm. er introduced And that. And and what I'm hearing you say is that that impersonalization that then comes into the relationship.
1: Yeah. And another thing is in education, we're advised to build education at an eighth grade level, which is difficult when you have been in education beyond an eighth grade level and then not everyone is at an eighth grade level of education, right? So we have to understand that that is fluid. I think that it also comes down to just having a conversation with your patient, right? So understanding where they're at, maybe the patient isn't Ready to learn. Maybe they're still stuck on the information that they learned in the last appointment. You know, maybe they just had to navigate a difficult diagnosis. Maybe they're understanding that they just received a diagnosis that they did get a BRCA positive diagnosis that they could have passed on to five children or. So they could have passed it on to three of five children or two of five children, right? So they have multiple appointments, possible screening, possible surgeries. So we have to keep that into consideration too. So that's why I do think that having the print material with the pictorials, and I am a strong advocate of analogies because I think when you are with your family members, you're not always bringing those brochures with and so having an analogy stuck in the back of your head is sometimes helpful because then you're like, what did that nurse say? Or what did that doctor say? Oh yeah, I can pull that out. And then that's, that's a good explanation. I think one thing that we do see a lot to relate it back to the lab is we see that patients really struggle with the difference between somatic and germline testing. So to think about grandma again, so let's say a 78 year old grandma goes into the clinic and is diagnosed with breast cancer, right? As an educator, it's an important to give her multiple learning styles, but we are probably going to be doing tumor or somatic testing on her, but she goes home and tells her 18 year old granddaughter about this, but 18 year old granddaughter came home and said, well, my best friend's mom who's 43 just got diagnosed with breast cancer and they're going to do germline and somatic breast cancer testing cuz they're not sure but her family has breast cancer mm-hmm. so grandma should probably have a little bit of information to explain to the 18-year-old that they don't think that grandma's breast cancer is a germline variant so the 18-year-old doesn't have to get too anxious about it but We also struggle in education that there are only certain resources we can put in print. We can put certain things that they can refer to, but as a provider, I think that it's important if you feel like something is going to be a helpful resource, that patient may appreciate if you think it's going to be helpful for them for you to physically write it down there. And then when they're ready to absorb that information, they'll go to it because they felt like you Thought it was going to be helpful for them. So if I feel like a support group was helpful, I'm going to write that down. But Mayo Clinic may not have vetted that support group per se or a different institution. Then
0: it really that, seems to come yeah. back to you're you're yeah. advocating for that person.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that there's just different avenues that can be taken and it's not always black and white, right?
0: You know, that touches on This question I have that I think probably all of us can relate to is when we're educating somebody, sometimes we're not getting the sense that they're understanding the information. Or if we're asking them to, you know, say back to me, explain to me what we've been talking about, it's clear that they're not making the connection. How do you navigate those situations? Because you really are doing a complex set of skills there of understanding, diagnosing, or trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what the challenge is with the information? How do you navigate that?
1: Again, I think that's having that conversation with the patient and doing a teach-back method. I mean, it goes back to that. It's just not quizzing them because they're going to feel uncomfortable (laughs) anytime you have a quiz or test at school. Maybe some people like that. I did not. Just so that they're retaining something and again, providing resources because they may not be ready to obtain that information or to soak it in. And that's okay. We have the patient portal providing material in the language that they understand. So (laughs) we do have a diverse community, especially in Rochester. We want to be giving materials in a language that they understand. We want to be providing materials for family members. So I've worked on BRCA for males. So if we are going to be diagnosing a female with a BRCA2 mutation, we do want to let her know that that is something that she could have passed on to her sons or that her brother could have. Maybe we give her a pamphlet to hand to her brother or to hand to her sons if they are old enough. Those are things to consider as well. It's not just the patient themselves, but care for their families because that's what they're gonna think about. I know that as I've gotten older, my thoughts have changed too now that mm-hmm. I have children of my own.
0: So the importance of educating patients has always been around, uh, and like you say, you you have your own family now, and, and you've seen a lot of things advance with the the Center for Individualized Medicine. What does the future of patient education look like to you?
1: Yeah, so kind of as evidenced of us sitting here right now on a podcast over the computer, it's definitely enhanced this. Last few years is enhanced by technology, right? It has taken away some of what I appreciate most about healthcare, some of the personal touch. I'm giving you a little clue into what my love language is. I'm huge into the love languages. I appreciate everyone else's love language, though, if it's not what mine is. But in all seriousness, I do think that there's something to be said for the personal touch experience provider and even Nurses are taught to educate their patients. You know, it may not be like opening up a book, like a a teacher educator, but our time with nurses and doctors has decreased over the years and it will continue to decrease. I know our time with genetic counselors has decreased because we just don't have the teachers to teach genetic counselors so they can only take so many in the, in their programs We need to be more creative and find more efficient ways to educate patients. It means utilizing more technology. And I understand this must change with the times and hospitals are driven by reimbursements. I realize that it may affect patient satisfaction as well, but we have to not hit them in the face with the technology, but establish relationships with them first. So meet the patient first before we're just like throwing the technology in their face, it's important to establish those relationships. Another factor is patient expectations. Those are only increasing, especially with COVID. I think that the everything's at their fingertips, right? So we've raised the bar and providing everything digitally, we have to address varied health literacy, digital access, with patient engagement in their healthcare and their literacy, patients not only will expect to see the information delivered directly to their personal devices and in their preferred language, like I talked about, but the, at their reading level and in terms that are actionable and meaningful to their understanding and their situations. It really has to be patient-centered and patient-geared and To them. So it's on their terms. And I understand this makes it difficult for us as educators to gauge if they're understanding or comprehending what we are delivering to them because it's not face to face all the time, right? So we can't always get a great assessment. So we want to make sure that they're still communicating with their providers. So we want to make sure that they're doing the face to face engaging maybe via the portal or those kinds of things. And I know that there can be sometimes a disconnect when it comes to electronics as well. So we have to make sure that not too much gets lost in translation. Overall, I think just healthcare um, just needs to continually focus on strengthening and providing insightful ways to deliver patient education, which will be essential in improving patient experiences and outcomes for today and in the future.
0: Uh, Absolutely. I, I think that that really uh, resonates with me about these key things for all of us to take home with us about you know, the creativity that we're going to have to pull going forward, uh, the valuing the skill of, of being an educator, the idea of making things actionable and meaningful for the person, because we understand that for adult learning, that is so fundamental mm-hmm. for that learning to happen. And then also, I, I think you're spot on. I see this in I struggle with it myself, this idea of disconnected education. There's not that opportunity to check in with the learner in the same way. And so it, it really demands creativity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So thanks for rounding with us today, Corey Verg. Thanks to all the listeners for taking the time to round with us today as well. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your story and also helping us remember some of these key factors that make our education with uh, colleagues and patients so important.
1: Thank you, Dr. Crater.
0: So to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation@mayo.edu at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine's Round podcast, please subscribe and until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.